0: Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Arcadia Yule. She is serving as Miss Boston 2023. She is currently a third year PhD student, And she was a first gen student when going to college. And she is also a stalking survivor. So she's got lots of great advocacy work for a lot of different things. And I'm excited to have her here talking about, you know, her personal journeys and things she's been advocating for and going through. So thank you so much, Arcadia. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited just to get the chance to chat a little bit more. You, you hit a lot of the highlights there, um, but yeah, basically me, I am Miss Boston 2023, so I'm a local ambassador for the Miss America organization. Um, so what that means is that in June, I'll be competing for the title of Miss Massachusetts, and if I'm lucky enough to secure that, then I would go on and compete for Miss America. Um, and a lot of what I do as Miss Boston is really advocating for domestic and dating violence awareness and prevention. I am a stalking survivor myself. I was stalked when I was 14 years old by a classmate. And now as a psychologist and a psychology PhD student, I get to use a lot of my expertise to really go out and connect with other teens and young adults and make sure that they're able to identify some of those warning signs that I really wasn't able to when I was younger.
0: So with saying that right there, how you might not have been able to really identify what was going on when you were younger, what was this experience like for you? And Mm -hmm. how are you now able to kind of talk about it and realize this is what was happening?
1: I think the most difficult part of my story is that I didn't realize it was bad when it was happening. And it wasn't until much later, many years later, that I was really able to put a name to it. So I mentioned I was 14. I was in middle school. This was the first boy to ever ask me out. And I was very flattered. Um, But I was a little girl and I was like, no, thank you. Um, We can be friends. And It started with just a lot of, you know, staring at me and a lot of attention in class to the point where our teacher really had to move our seats. And then it escalated and he was following me throughout the hallways in school, he was following me to my bus stop at the end of the day. Um, And then it really escalated to online harassment. So not only messaging me, but messaging every single one of my friends, demanding to know where I was, what I was doing, who I was with, uh, spreading some really nasty rumors, I think, with the intent to get my friends to no longer associate with me. And what ended up happening is that actually one of my friends told my parents. Because again, I didn't, realized that was wrong. It was, was my first experience. I thought this was just the behavior of a disheartened teenage boy and that was just what happened. And I was very lucky that my parents stepped in and they contacted the school counselor and it all stopped. But it wasn't until many years later that I was actually in college studying psychology, uh, interning at a rape crisis center that I actually learned what stalking was. And I learned and was able to connect those dots and say, hey, something, something's not right here. And I think now that's something that's really important to me is that nobody in at any time or place should be experiencing abuse and not be able to realize that what's happening to them is wrong.
0: Right. That definitely makes a lot of sense. So why did you go into psychology?
1: That is a great question that i don't know if it has a very simple answer i explored a lot when i was in college i think i changed my major 6 times because i really i i was so fortunate you know i was a first generation student my parents did not have nobody in my family had the opportunity to go to a four year institution and really pick a career that they were passionate about and so i felt a lot of responsibility to not only get a great career, but to get a career that really made me happy. So I explored a lot, I changed my major a lot. And ultimately, I knew I wanted to help people. And I just found myself very drawn to psychology and to understanding why people are the way they are. And I got more involved in domestic violence prevention. I worked for a couple years in a domestic violence shelter with some of the kids that were living there. And I had some really incredibly moving experiences. And from there, just got really interested in early life research. And now a lot of what I do is researching early life stress and how that relates to how well we can prepare kids to succeed in school.
0: So what was it like being a first generation student since you did have this experience where you didn't say, I'm going to be a psychologist. You went for four years and you, you know, never wavered. So mm-hmm. did you have a support network at college since you you weren't able to lean on like parental experiences?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important uh, when we talk about first gen, there are so many different kinds of first generation students. And so... You know, I was a first generation student. My parents both got their GEDs. My dad went to night school for four years to get his associate's degree, while my mom took care of the newborn baby at home, which was me. So I think that speaks a lot to both of their dedication to that. So they were able to offer me some sort of insight. They offered me financial support as best they could um, and definitely kind of a shoulder throughout that process. But then once I got to school, I really did kind of rely on friendships and a lot of what I made at the Miss America organization kind of transferred over. I was able to meet other young women who were applying for scholarships, who were applying for uh, schools and all of that stuff that they were able to kind of give me the advice I needed and, and they were able to take on that support circle for me.
0: So when did your Miss America journey start?
1: Very early, actually. I So Miss America has a sister program called the Miss America's Teen Program. So I actually started as a teen. I was 15, I think, sophomore of high school. I had an older friend and she was competing and I just wanted to do everything that she did. And so I kind of joined in and, and they call it the bug a little bit because once you do it once, you're just you're hooked and you never want to stop. And so I have competed several times, not consecutively. Like there's been times I've taken a year or two off to really focus on school. And then I've come back. And just this past year, actually, the age limit for which you could compete in Miss America stopped at 25 years old. And so I turned 26 in October. So I thought I was done. I was out. I was finished. And they raised the age limit, a brand new Miss America rule The age limit to compete for Miss America is now 18 to 28, which is really incredible because it kind of acknowledges the fact that women are pursuing their education later in life. They're going for higher degrees. They're going for master's and PhDs, uh, and Miss America is there to support them with scholarships. So I got this second chance to kind of come back and compete again, and two weeks later I was Miss Boston. So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, if you thought, you know, the, the journey had ended to have, you know going back and then, and then winning that first competition. So can you talk a little bit about what Miss America does and what it mm-hmm. is like competing and having been a repeat computer?
1: It's so funny because each and every year you compete, you learn something new and you learn something new about yourself. Um, And so in order to actually compete the phases of competition, if you will, we have about a 10-minute private interview with the judges. And so that's a time where I'm going to talk about my school. I'm going to talk about my identity as a first-generation student. I'm going to talk about the advocacy work that I'm doing for domestic violence prevention. And yes, we'll dive into some politics and current events and talk about kind of world issues. And then on stage, we will do fitness in sportswear we will do talent and we will do onstage question and evening gown. And so a lot of what kind of happens behind the scenes though, people know that one night of competition, but you really have that title for a full year. You are out there working in your community. You are volunteering. Miss America is a scholarship organization. So uh, the women who win these titles pay off their student loan debt. They get thousands of dollars. Miss America gets thousands and thousands of dollars. Many women get full rides to college through just competing in this program. I say this story all the time. I talked about Miss America in every single one of my PhD interviews because the people that I met and the experiences that I made and the networking that I did uniquely prepared me to succeed in my career. And it's still doing that year after year after year.
0: So what was your talent portion for Miss America? And did it change over time? Yes, actually. So many girls,
1: they have their one talent and they do that every year and they work very hard on it. I have switched back and forth um, because I've I've always felt like my true talent isn't necessarily a stage talent, if you will. So I'm a writer. Uh, I have a published children's book. I'm also writing a young adult fantasy novel. I have a published one act play. And so, my very first year competing, I wanted to do theater. I wanted to be an actress. And so, I performed a comedic monologue for my talent. And it was, I think, the premise of it was I was breaking the penguins out of a zoo and so i was wearing my brother's like cub scout uniform and i had pigtails and big glasses on and just doing this crazy monologue where i was breaking into the zoo to free the penguins (laughs) um and that was so much fun and the year after that i came back and i was like no i'm gonna sing now and so i sang for many many years Although I did take another brief stint and I performed a monologue from the one act play that I published. And that was a very special year where I got to say, you know, my talent is, is being a writer and this is a special way for me to showcase that. So I'm glad I had that experience, but this year I am back to singing.
0: And do you have a favorite artist or a favorite genre that you tend to sing? Mm.
1: I don't know if I have a favorite artist. I have very eclectic tastes. You're going to find if you look at my Spotify, there's like five or 6,000 songs from every genre under the sun. As far as what I sing, I've typically done a lot of musical theater. Um, Last year, I sang Black Velvet, though, which is kind of like a pop rock song. And that was really fun. I got to be super dramatic with it. So we haven't picked what I'm singing at Miss Massachusetts this summer, but we'll have to stay tuned for that.
0: And so do you have any like professional training or anything in singing or musical theater or acting like that?
1: I have taken voice lessons. I've taken um, acting and writing lessons throughout the year. It's never been something that like I've gone to school for it formally. And I think that's actually a really important detail because a lot of times young women who are coming into Miss America are like, I can't compete with all of these girls that go to school, go to college for musical theater and have these amazing voices and these amazing dance talents. And, and so they feel like they don't belong in the organization. And in truth, talent is a component, yes, but it's so much about the performance and it's about you feeling confident in yourself. My my identity is being a PhD student. My identity is science, is being able to conduct groundbreaking research. And so I can't afford to invest hours and hours and hours in my singing. That's that's not who I am. But I can go on and I can have fun and I can give a performance and I can still succeed and win Miss Boston. So there really is an opportunity for everyone, regardless of whether or not you think you are the best, most amazing, most talented person in the world.
0: Right. Now, what was it like winning Miss Boston? Oh,
1: my gosh. It was... It was very surreal. I have wanted to be Miss Boston for a long time. I have known about the Miss Boston title. The Miss Boston title is known to be a very competitive title. And so I had competed last year and I was first runner up. And I was so incredibly sad. I live in Boston. I go to school in Boston. I I wanted that Boston title so badly. And then, like I said earlier, I thought I was done. I thought I had aged out and Miss America wouldn't let me come back anymore. And very, very suddenly found out that they had changed the rules and that I was going to get this second chance. It was about two weeks before the Miss Boston competition that I found that out. And so I kind of had to switch my mindset into like, okay, it's time to compete, even though you thought you were done and had to, you know, reorient myself and okay, I got to pick a song. I got to practice my interview. I got to do this. And so for those two weeks, it felt very high speed at times of just getting ready for it. And then the entire weekend that I was there competing, it, you just want it so bad and you want the opportunity of it so bad that when they finally get to crowning, the day goes by so quickly. You blink and it's over. They get to crowning and they call your name. And I think my whole body was just shaking at that point because it had been so many years in the making. And to know that I had finally like done it and accomplished it was a really... Incredible experience.
0: So, you mentioned that you have not picked your song for the Miss Massachusetts competition. Mm -hmm. So, what is it like preparing for the competition, but then also like doing advocacy work during this time as Miss Boston?
1: Mm -hmm. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think doing advocacy work does prepare you because I want to be able to go into my Miss Massachusetts interview and say, you know, I want this opportunity. I want this ambassadorship so that I can continue making progress in the state because I've already done X, Y, and Z. I've already presented a presentation on healthy relationships to 2000 students. I've already published a children's book, but now as Miss Massachusetts, I can make that even bigger. I can host a statewide dating violence summit. I can do this. I can do that. And so For me, a lot of what preparation looks like right now is just being in my community. It's meeting people in Boston. It's volunteering. It's making those connections, accomplishing new things. And yeah, eventually I'll pick a talent song and I'll start to work on that too. Um, But for this particular juncture, I want to make sure that I'm doing the job that Miss Massachusetts requires, that Miss Boston requires, and then I'll show up on stage and I'll be wonderful on stage and I'll make sure that happens. But for me, the the work is the important part.
0: And so, how are you able to balance the work of Miss Boston with being a PhD student?
1: <laughs> wonderful question. Some days it's easier than others. I am at the place in my PhD where I'm actually starting to think about my dissertation. In a couple months, I will be launching my own research study to collect my dissertation data, and so there are some days that that can be quite stressful. Uh, But the good thing about a PhD is that nobody is hanging over your shoulder, making sure that you're checking your timesheet, right? As long as I get my work done, my boss does not care what hours of the day that that happens. And so some days I am out nine to five doing my job as Miss Boston. I am out at schools. I'm out volunteering or making connections with domestic violence organizations. And then I come home and I eat dinner and then I do my homework or I do whatever kind of deadlines I need to be working on. I think that if you really want something, you find ways to make it work. And so I just always remind myself that what I do as Miss Boston is actually transferable skills that will help me get a job after my PhD. And my PhD is transferable skills that I can talk about in Miss, in my Miss Massachusetts interview that make me prepared to become Miss Massachusetts. So they're not in, in competition with each other in that sense.
0: So then assuming you're going into like the science route post PhD degree, mm mm-hmm. And whenever your journey does end with the Miss America universe, whether that's in the near future or the farther future, how are you going to continue your advocacy work for domestic violence?
1: Wonderful, wonderful question. So my ultimate goal I do plan to leave academia, and I want to go into more of a policy-centered world. I want to make sure that we are creating policies that are really informed and backed by science. And so there are a lot of offices right now within the government that do really focus on adolescent sex education. They really focus on relationship education. They focus on domestic violence prevention. And so ultimately, I'd love to be able to end up there, and I'd love to be able to say, that I have the quantitative and qualitative skills as a researcher from my years as a PhD, but I also have the policy skills. I have the advocacy skills. I have the lobbying skills from my years in Miss America that I am perfectly suited for this job right here. And so that's what I mean when I say that they're not in competition with each other, because both of these realms are going to eventually feed into what I want to do for the rest of my life.
0: Right. So it's a nice merging of the two. Now, what has your research focused on for your PhD program and throughout your studies?
1: So I am really interested in kind of the things that go bump in the night, the things that we don't want to happen to children, but we know do sometimes. And so a lot of that work looks at experiences of poverty or experiences of chronic stress and the effects of that on development. So a lot of my work that I've done so far has really focused on school readiness, and I've looked at the effects of the environment, of biological stress on how prepared kids are to enter school and learn, and I've been able to find that biological stress surprise, surprise, is negatively affected to their school readiness. Um, But I've also found that the way that mothers interact with their kids can be really protective and sensitive guidance and structuring during those home interactions can really help kids be more prepared for school. And then moving into the future, I'm actually planning to launch research here in the next couple of months, knock on wood, that will look at the COVID-19 pandemic actually and we'll look at strain on the family and stress on the family during that experience of the pandemic and how that relates to children's memory. And I'm hoping to look at different aspects of biological stress and parenting and parenting conversations to see all of the dynamics between that. But my hope is that that's gonna be pretty innovative and groundbreaking because obviously COVID is this massive thing that happened to us all that we're still trying to kind of understand the effects of.
0: And it sounds like you're very passionate about your research. You know, the PhD program is, you know, your identity right now. So do you think you'll continue to do some research even after leaving academia? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know And it's, that's,
1: that's the crazy thing about the career path that I've chosen is that there's just so many opportunities from it. Um, typically in the PhD world within my field, you can kind of go into academia and you become a college professor and you do research full time, or you can go into more industry side of things and you can research like user experiences and, uh, you know, things like that, user satisfaction. Or you can go into this policy realm, and that might mean that you're working at the National Institute of Health and you're deciding what kinds of research studies get funded. Or that could mean you're working in the CDC or within the government and kind of doing research yourself. And so I don't know if I will fully know the answer to that question until I'm actually at the stage where I can apply for jobs and I'm seeing what's out there, but I think ideally at some point in my life, I will circle back to it and I'll have the skills to circle back to it. I I love that I'm ending up in a career peo- field that has a lot of options that if I end up getting bored 10 years from now, I can switch it up a little bit.
0: And so do you have experience like through your advocacy directly working on policies right now in your local government?
1: I do actually have some experience. We are working on something. I don't want to say too much until it's finalized, but I am working with my senator's office right now to roll out something in the month of May that I am really, really excited about. And I'm also been working with Jane Doe Inc., which is the Coalition of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Organizations within the state of Massachusetts. They have just rolled out their legislative priorities for the next year. So I have been getting to work with them and learn more about what they're doing. I just wrote a policy brief on a Healthy Education Act that's we're trying to push through right now. So definitely kind of working on a couple of different areas of trying to get really important legislation pushed through. And we'll have to see how that goes in the next couple months.
0: Right. And it's totally okay to, you know, not be able to share all the details. Um, and hopefully, you know, <laughs> things come to fruition as, as you would like to see. So what is it like, you know, connecting directly, you know, I believe you said with the senator's office, like, directly mm-hmm. being in politics in such a political fueled time
1: that is a very interesting question i will tell you i don't i don't know if i've had any incredibly political moments if if that makes sense i think a lot of what i'm doing as a domestic violence advocate A lot of people can agree that domestic violence is bad, right? Nobody's saying we should be endorsing that. Um, So I'm working on a very non-controversial issue. And of course, when when we're talking about politics, things come up, budgetary constraints come up. And I think it's just really important to remember that everyone you're working with is in that job because they want to help people. We might all have different ways and we might have different ideas about how we can best help people, but at the end of the day we are all there because we want to improve society. And if you go into it with that mindset, I think that really helps you navigate the situation.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and, and talks to also you know, the degree that you're in, why you're doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about some of these programs you have been working through and the work that you've promoted as Miss Boston?
1: Sure. The big one that I am working on right now is I have launched a national speaking campaign, which is so cool every time I get to say that to realize that I'm doing it. But I have created a presentation. It's called the Healthy Relationships Guide that really defines the different forms of abuse. It talks about warning signs. It really defines some of what we know about the science of abuse. So it talks about uh, the relationship spectrum. It talks about power and abuse cycle. And then it talks about different areas and resources to stay healthy, uh, to seek support if you need it, where to find that support. And I've been able to then go out and connect with different sororities across Massachusetts, different college organizations. I have presented, let's see, one, two, three, four. I think I have four coming up. And that is at colleges across the country, really. So that has been really exciting to be able to kind of take my expertise as a psychologist, take my passions, and then be able to move out and really start making a difference in an area that I'm really passionate about.
0: Right. Now, if you're doing this like directly through Miss Boston, are they like able to support you financially through this work? Or how does that partnership work?
1: So I won scholarship dollars by winning the title of Miss Boston. I won about $1,200 in scholarships. And then we have various different uh, business sponsors that have come on that usually in exchange for our support, right? I'm a public figure. So I get to go out and I get to stop by your shop and say, hey, come shop here because they've got amazing products. And we really create this mutually beneficial collaboration, really. And I get access to some things that way. Um, And that's always really cool because it allows me to meet new people. It allows me to really invest in small business a lot of times. So that's been really fun. And if anybody's listening and is interested in supporting the Miss Boston organization, we are always interested in more sponsors if you would like to reach out.
0: And so you mentioned earlier that Miss Boston tends to be pretty competitive. So why is Miss Boston kind of this... Trickier title?
1: Yeah. I th- well, it's Boston, right? Boston is this historic city in the country. And so I think everybody recognizes Boston and, um, you know, we all want to be a part of that. The Miss Boston organization has a board of directors. So I get a whole built-in support team of people that are there to help guide me. Um, so they're there to help me pick a talent song. They're there to help me go dress shopping and give me opinions. I have a business manager that I was just joking about this with her today, but I talked to her every single day of my life. And it's not just about Miss Boston. She'll be the first one to tell you that, you know, she wants to support me through life. If I'm if I've got boy troubles, if I've got school troubles, she is a ear to listen to that. So they kind of build in this super supportive culture. And then typically their girls tend to do good at Miss Massachusetts because they have that full, well-rounded support going into prepping them. So I think Overall, it's just a really incredible organization that has a reputation of being a very incredible organization, uh, rightfully so.
0: And do you get to connect with past Miss Boston such that like in years to come, you will also be able Mm -hmm. to be a mentor to future Miss Bostons?
1: Yes, and I think that's something else that's so incredible about the Miss Boston organization is once you are in it, you are never out of it. And the direct, the board of directors will say this to you as well, like you are stuck here for life. And it's it's so true. I mean, each year at the Miss Boston competition, you will see former Miss Bostons, former Miss Cambridges who also get crowned there in the audience because every year they want to come back and they want to support the new girl. I have former Miss Bostons who will comment on every single one of my Instagram posts and show me love because it's such a sisterhood in that sense. And that's something that I'm really excited to build upon. One of my goals, should I win the title of Miss Massachusetts actually, is that I have created a title holder tip book. And the idea behind it is that you should you should walk into a system of support when you get crowned because that, as exciting as it is and as much as your body is shaking and you can't wait to get started, it can be overwhelming too, right? Like you just won this title and now you have to go out into your community and do scary things and go on stage and do scary things. And so I've created this book that is really going to walk the next Miss Boston through that process. It's going to give her the resources that she needs to succeed. It's going to give her email templates, places to shop for affordable clothing. It's going to give her my advice and my feedback on my year. And should I win the title of Miss Massachusetts, I'm excited to kind of branch that out and send that to other local organizations within the state. But yeah, the mentorship component is huge and I'm very excited for that.
0: And so what are the sort of numbers when it comes to how many people you were competing against for Miss Boston and how many people will be at the Miss Massachusetts stage?
1: So typically at Miss Massachusetts, it's around 20 to 24. At Miss Boston this year, I believe it was 12. Um, But that does vary by your state too. I know some states... You could have anywhere from like 50 to 75 to 100 girls competing.
0: So did you, so are you nervous to then be on a bit of a bigger stage going to Miss Massachusetts? Not particularly,
1: because the thing (laughs) of it is, is I don't think that anybody else affects what I do, right? Like I'm there to show the judges who I am. I'm there to show them hey, I'm Arcadia. I care about domestic violence prevention. And here's all of the awesome things that I've done for that. And I'm a PhD student. And oh, yeah, I'm also an influencer online. And I have a following of 12,000, right? Like I want to talk about those things. And so it doesn't matter if another girl's doing incredible things too. She should be doing incredible things. That's awesome for her. That's exciting. Um, and I think it's it's only cooler when we get to go to an organization and we go to compete at states with 25 incredibly accomplished, smart young women, because we get to ensure that whoever becomes Miss Massachusetts is going to do a phenomenal job. So I'm focusing on me. I'm focusing on being the best person I can be. And I'm, I'm going to be that person, whether there's 12 girls on stage or whether there's a hundred.
0: And so then is the Miss Massachusetts just kind of like a repeat of the same sort of thing that you experienced at Miss Boston or is it a bit expanded?
1: It's definitely a bit expanded. Um, When I competed for Miss Boston and typically for most local organizations, that competition happens in a single day. So you'll have your interview in the morning and then around 3 to 5 p.m. you will have your onstage portion. When we go to Miss Massachusetts, it's a bit longer. We'll actually check in on a Wednesday, and then we will have rehearsal all day Wednesday. We'll do our interview on Thursday. We'll have rehearsal the rest of the day, rehearsal all day Friday. And then we actually have a preliminary competition. So you will compete in all of your phases of competition on stage. And then from that, they will calculate who the top 10 or sometimes top 11 scores are. And then Saturday, there will be a final night of competition where the top 10 or 11 is announced. And then they will compete in their phases of competition again. So generally, the phases of competition are the same, but you definitely want to be even stronger than you were at Miss Boston. And you want to make sure that you have the stamina to keep going through what can be like a very stressful week.
0: And so then do you have to prepare like multiple different things if you get on to the second round that you're not doing the same thing as the day before?
1: Mm-hmm. So mostly you do the same thing. The big difference is that your onstage question will be different. Um, so you never know what your onstage question will be, but you'll wear the same evening gown. You'll sing the same talent song. Um, and sometimes you'll find that girls tend to to perform a little better on finals night. I think that was definitely the case for me last year. Last year I was fortunate enough to be called into the top 10 and it, it I was much better on top 10 night than I was the night before because you're just so excited. You've accomplished this thing that that you've been working really hard for and adrenaline's going and so you are super excited and and it, it does away with some of the nerves. So generally you do the same things with the exception of maybe an onstage question or two. Um, but you'll find that your performance tends to be a little different.
0: I right. Now, what sort of onstage questions have you personally gotten?
1: I, so The onstage questions are supposed to be a continuation of your private interview. So typically what happens is that you will have your 10-minute interview with the judges, you'll leave, and then they will write down the question they were planning to ask you next, that they didn't get time to ask you. And so sometimes that's about you personally. It's about your identities, your school, your community service initiatives, Sometimes it's about something random, like current events, um, and then sometimes it's about something just like fun. So, I'm thinking of the past couple onstage questions I've been asked. I believe at Miss Boston, I was asked, "Do you think society is too concerned with being politically correct?" And then I think my two onstage questions at Miss Massachusetts the year before um, were, "How would society be different if it was one if it was run by women?" And then how can we address food insecurity in the state of Massachusetts?
0: Those are some pretty heavy handed questions. How do you prepare? (laughs) They they are. So how do you prepare for those?
1: There's really no perfect way. I, I think it's different for everyone. For me... I am a talker. I don't know if you can gather this from this interview, but I like chatting. And so I will really just kind of pay attention to the news. I get news delivered to my email inbox every morning. And so I'll read it and then just take the time to like figure out what is your opinion. Again, that's a common misconception with competing in Miss America is that you have to think a certain way or you have to talk a certain way. There is no right answer for any of these questions we just want to see that you can like express your ideas and so the best way to prepare is just doing that is just looking at the world around you and thinking you know what do i think about this And that's another really transferable skill that really does prepare young women to go out into the world and to succeed, because we need to be able to express our thoughts. We need to be able to look around a room that might be filled with people that seem more powerful than us, that seem scary. And we need to stand in our own two shoes and say, this is what I think. And Miss America is teaching me how to do that.
0: Great. Now, you mentioned earlier that you do have an online presence um, with a group of supporters. So what is your online experience like being an influencer?
1: So I started my social media accounts right when I started my PhD, actually. And I started, I was one of the COVID cohorts, we call it, because I started in 2020. So I had moved from Maryland to Boston in a pandemic. And I started a PhD program, which if you know anybody who has done a PhD, they will tell you that first year is by far the hardest. It is the worst. It is the year that your workload is the lightest, but it is also the year where you you're doubting yourself, you're lonely, you're overwhelmed. And so I was going through all of that while not being allowed to leave my bedroom pretty much and i was really really hard and i really was longing for a support system and i said you know what if i can't go outside and do it i'll make a support system right here at home and i started my social media channels and it really just kind of has been incredible because it's allowed me to meet other graduate students and other scientists from across the world and it's offered so many cool opportunities too i got to i got to present my research at the University of Toronto, which is something like crazy for a PhD student to have been invited to do, but I got to do that. I was at an academic conference in Salt Lake City last week, and I had four or five girls who follow me on Instagram come up and say, "Hey, we've really we follow you online, and we love your content. It's so helpful, and we wanted to say hi." And that's so cool, and and to be able to get messages of like, I'm a first-generation student too, and your advice helped me get into my top program. I mean, it's it's surreal. It blows my mind every time I think about what kind of community we've been able to build online. And I'm excited now that I get to incorporate Miss America into that and really show a lot of the PhD and the graduate students following me that you can have a work-life balance, you can have outside hobbies and passions, and you can still be successful in your PhD and, and do it all.
0: Great. Now, what sort of things you you touched on in a little bit, but what sort of things do you share on Instagram? And is Instagram like your main platform?
1: Yeah, so I I started with an online blog, and I have to admit that I did struggle to keep up with that a little bit. So Instagram quickly became my primary platform. I am on TikTok now as well for however long that lasts, we'll see. But I share a lot of kind of realistic depictions of graduate school life, and that really ties into my first gen experience. I always say that the higher up in education you go, the more first gen you start to feel. Because I didn't notice it as much when I was in undergrad, and then once you get to your master's and your PhD, uh, it's it's so much less likely that you're meeting people that have a similar background as you because. It's just, you know, majority of my peers, their parents have higher level degrees too. So I wanted to make sure that other people knew what they were getting into. So I do share the highs and the lows. I share, yeah, I just published a new paper and it was great. And I also share the time that I got rejected from a grant that I applied to and I cried about it because it's important to to normalize those feelings. And, you know, like I said, I I do a lot of sharing of Miss Boston on there sharing graduate school tips and tricks. I actually have ADHD. So I share a lot of ADHD tips as well. And it's really kind of this place where I get to talk about succeeding in higher education, but also make it personal.
0: And if you don't mind, would you be willing to share just a little bit about your ADHD diagnosis? Because I feel Mm -hmm. like I believe the statistic is that young girls tend not to get diagnosed early on. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if that was Mm -hmm. your experience.
1: I was diagnosed, I believe I was 21, 22, maybe. I had just started my first full-time job after college. So after undergrad, I worked for for two years as a research coordinator. And I had just switched into that role and just really started having a hard time. I was having a hard time getting through the workday. I was having a hard time really getting to work at the start of the day. I was having a lot of difficulty with my emotions and my emotion regulation. And I had a friend who actually had ADHD who was diagnosed when she was very, very young. And so she has spent her whole life learning about it, is very knowledgeable on it. And I was listening to her talk one day about her symptoms and about some of the things that she was going through. And again, it was just one of those like light bulb moments where I'm sitting there and I'm like, this sounds a little too familiar. <laughs> so I I went to a psychiatrist and I kind of went through everything and um, actually went to a couple different doctors to get everything confirmed. And I was diagnosed multiple times. Um, but yeah, it, it is true that women typically tend to get diagnosed later in life. They tend to have, um, their hyperactivity comes out in different ways. So it's not necessarily jumping off the walls. Sometimes it can be really, really talkative. It can be being loud, being uh, more likely to interrupt people. And for me, getting the diagnosis was an important mindset shift more than anything. Because, yes, I was able to learn strategies that helped me improve in work, and, and I'm still learning strategies that help me improve as a grad student. But for most of my life, I grew up with this belief that people are either born smart or they're not. And I, I just – I had this – believed that that was how it was. And and I fully 100% in my heart believed that I was not a smart person, that the only reason I did well in school was because I just worked hard. And I I was working so hard to compensate for the fact that I was unintelligent compared to everyone else. And that's just, it's not true. And it's unfortunately, it's something that so many people with ADHD do come to believe about themselves. And it's not, it's not black and white. It's not smart or dumb. It's not that I'm dumb and I just have to work harder than everyone else. It's that I have different challenges and I am intelligent and I just have to find the way to let my intelligence shine through.
0: Great. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today?
1: You know, we have covered so, so much today. I think, If I can leave with any kind of words of wisdom, I will say, know the warning signs of abuse. Know if you are in a relationship where you feel like something's off or you're just not sure, do a quick Google search. There are tons and tons of resources out there that you can learn a bit more. Always make sure you're investing in your self-care and your mental health. Work-life balance is possible. Maintaining healthy fitness, well-rounded fitness is possible when you are stressed out with work. And if you are looking for scholarship dollars, the Miss America organization is a great opportunity for you.
0: I think those are some great points to end on. At the end, I do ask all of my guests a random question that's a little bit different than what we've been talking about. So my question for you is, have you or would you ever ride on a motorcycle?
1: Oh, no, no, I would not. I'm a very clumsy person. I am. I am the kind of person that one time I sprained my wrist by putting on a tennis shoe. So <laughs> I I know that that is not an avenue for me. I would fall down. I would hurt myself. I would hurt others. It's It's not worth it for anyone. <laughs>
0: Alright, that brings this episode to a close, so of course I will be leaving Arcadia's Instagram as she plugged it earlier along with the Miss Boston Instagram as well, along of course with her TikTok and her website, so if you'd like to see more about her and everything she's got going on, she has a great website with lots of good information, so feel free to check those links out directly in the description. And if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episodes and past resources, brings you to all of our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. And if you would like to be a guest and share your story on this podcast, my email is there. So feel free to reach out to me. So thank you so much, Arcadia, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye.